Thank you, Karen and Jen and Joni. I'm, although I'm not sure, uh, uh, you know, aren't you supposed to wear like a, a, hat, a Western hat and some boots when you sing that? <laughs> yeah, with feather on, yeah, yeah, something like that. Something like that. Thank you. That was very beautiful. Um, we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke this Sunday morning, and uh, Uh, So I invite you to stand with me, and the reading of his word will be in Luke chapter 14. We'll be beginning in verse 15, though I will be uh, back in the early part of that chapter at one point, but beginning in verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and aren't able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, will he he send a delegation while while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace? In the same way, Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fed neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Can, is everybody hear me all right? It's working? Okay, good. All right. It uh, wasn't working so well last week. So let me, uh, let me just open this up with a word of prayer here. Lord Jesus, we pray as we spend time in your precious word, your precious, inerrant, infallible word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in the writing of the truth of these words upon our hearts, just as you were present in the writing of these words. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I uh, heard the story of a New York stockbroker who had just purchased a brand new Porsche. He uh, parked it in front of his office to show it off to his colleagues. And uh, as he's getting out of the car, 
an SUV comes speeding along a little too close to the curb and takes off the door before driving off. As you can imagine, the man gets quite upset. He grabs his cell phone and calls the police. It takes them about five minutes to get there. Before the officer has a chance to ask any question, the man starts to scream hysterically. My Porsche, my beautiful silver Porsche is ruined. No matter how long it's at the body shop, it'll never be the same again. When the man finally uh, finishes his rant, the policeman shakes his head in disgust. And he said, I can't believe how materialistic you are. You are so focused on your possessions that you don't notice anything else in your life. You are clearly more in love with your car and possessions than anything or anyone else. How can you say such a thing to me at a time like this, the sobbed the Porsche owner? The policeman replied, well, you didn't even realize that your arm went with the door. <laughs> the stockbroker looked down in horror and screamed, my Rolex! Yeah, you, some of you are snickering now, but you'll tell it later on here. Uh, the, you know, the, uh, the values and focus of this stockbroker are clearly quite worldly and not godly. His devotion is clearly to himself and his own desires. Now, the historical event in the life of Christ, which we read, is, I think, very important for us to understand as Christ's disciples. And like that humorous story, it too is about our values. So uh, I hope you've got your Bible open with me there. And uh, we, the, the text actually begins in the beginning of chapter 14. And that's the setting. The setting there is a meal, as uh, we find out in verse 1 of chapter 14. And as Jesus enters the house for this meal, the Pharisees are watching him. They're watching closely. And a man from, suffering from dropsy is there, which is a condition of retaining bodily fluids. And uh, many around him think that this is a condition that resulting from God's judgment. And Jesus faces that, faces that issue straight on. He asks the Pharisees and scribes if it's lawful to heal such a person on the Sabbath. Because they remain silent, Jesus takes the man's hand, heals him, and sends him on his way. He tells them that if they had a son or ox in the ditch, they would pull him out. In other words, it's appropriate to show compassion on the Sabbath, or any day for that matter. He then speaks about humility and about hosting a feast where you invite all those who can never really repay your generosity. And it's at this point that Jesus tells the parable that we uh, begin to see here. And uh, what prompts him telling this parable is a, is a comment about how blessed it is to just be invited to the great banquet in God's kingdom. And that's what causes Jesus to tell this story. One uh, scholar restates that person's comment this way. Hey, despite our differences, won't it be nice for all of us to experience the blessing of sitting in fellowship before God when he reasserts his rule fully? Jesus challenges this way of thinking. Many who think they will be blessed to be at the great banquet of God are at risk of never making it to the table. 
Many who think they're on the narrow road that leads to life will find that they've fooled themselves and are actually on the wide road that leads to destruction. Jesus tells the story of a man who is planning a great big dinner party at his house. And when the time for the party comes, the owner sends out the servants to announce the beginning of the party. Now, it would be rude in that culture to reject the invitation, especially if you've already accepted it. Three of the invitees who had previously accepted now rudely decide not to come. They each have good excuses. One wants to check out a recently bought field, a final inspection of the property to seal the deal, if you will. The second excuse is about buying five oxen. Anyone in that kind of business would know that a final inspection of that property is important too, just like the previous one. I know a few American businessmen that would tell me anything different than business being more important than a party, right? The third and final excuse is a man who was recently married. The Old Testament sometimes even allowed for newlyweds to be excused from important vital responsibilities. So this sounds like a very reasonable good excuse too. All of them are reasonable, reasonable in that culture. They all have good, reasonable, sound excuses why they couldn't attend. They're just being responsible, aren't they? After the servant comes and tells the master of these cancellations, a host would find himself in in a bit of a dilemma. Should he postpone the party to a more convenient time, even though all the food is already ready? He instead goes ahead with the party. He instructs the servants to go out and invite the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame, many who are often excluded because they're on the lowest rung of society. The tables of the kingdom of God must be filled. And as the room begins to fill up, uh, fill up but there's still room. So the owner sends out his servants to the city limits, to the edges, to urge even more people to come. Now, uh, in the historical context, the meaning and symbolism of this parable is pretty clear. And it's uh, point one on your outline there. Uh, For those of you who like to keep notes, it's in the middle of your bulletin. The original people invited is Israel. But the second group includes you and I. You and I. Now see, most of the original invitees didn't respond positively to God's invitation in Jesus Christ. But the party is ready. And others who are usually excluded will now be invited in. And this, of course, represents the coming of the gospel to you and to me. All those who aren't Israelites, the first have become last and the last first. Now, if that was all there is to the story, we'd conclude that there really wasn't much to learn for us, right? But there is really much more to the story as uh, Jesus develops this out and fleshes this out. Now, uh, this next statement of Jesus in, the la- in, this, uh, in this passage is kind of hard for us to uh, grasp our minds around because we believe that the Christian faith high- highly values family and commitment to family, and rightly so. If so, how can Jesus say this? If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, 
wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. Well, let me uh, just give you his main point right off the bat, and, uh, and it's point two on your outline, and then I'll explain it. True discipleship requires Jesus to be the first priority in life. And anyone responding positively to the invitation to the celebration must count the cost of following him. The direction that Jesus leads must be the priority of our life. We must present our entire lives to him because we're called to reflect values that honor our God in every aspect of our lives. That's the cost. The cost is that I am no longer my own. I have been bought with a price, and accepting the invitation means I don't get to live my life as if God does not exist. I don't get to make decisions without prayerfully seeking the Lord daily, even hourly. See, Jesus must be first, and disciples must be ready to identify with him and his suffering. You know, um, the reality is even today in many cultures, choosing Jesus means being rejected by your own family and your own community. In parts of the Middle East today, choosing Jesus means death, literal death, at the hands of your own family members. Discipleship is a radical call. If anyone wants to follow him, he must hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even his or her own life. See, the meaning of the Greek term used for hate here is a comparative one. The idea isn't that we should hate our family and our, even our own lives, but that in comparison to Jesus, if we're forced to choose, the winner in that choice must always be Jesus. He is to be loved far more than anyone or anything else. Our devotion to Jesus must have the highest priority to the point that all other options are hate in comparison to the overwhelming love and devotion we're to have to Jesus as our Savior. When faced with death or Jesus, Jesus must be the choice. When faced with imprisonment or rejection by family and or friends or community, to be a true disciple of Jesus means always choosing him. When the choice is between a bigger house, more money, and our commitments to Christ. You get the idea. Now Jesus illustrates the cost of this in three ways. One is a, a man who builds a watchtower over his land or over a city. It's an expensive thing to do, so he needs to be sure that the project is affordable, right? So one needs a, an estimate and a financial plan before they start building. It would be a tragic to start a project and not have enough money to finish it. And uh, in the story, that Je and as Jesus tells it, some people even go by and, and mock him. The second illustration is a king who's assessing his ability to make war. If he realizes he can't win, he'll, stand, he'll, he'll instead send a delegation and negotiate for peace. So to anyone who's considered accepting the invitation to the celebration in God's kingdom must make an assessment. We have two choices. You can go your own way, which ultimately is to choose to be at war with God, or you can choose discipleship with Jesus, 
which means total devotion to him, which then brings us peace with God. We can either choose to give up everything to be Christ's disciples and have peace with God, or we can choose to hold on to our favorite sins and choose to hold on to all of our favorite comforts and be at war with God. Choosing to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior isn't about adding an eternal insurance policy to our lives and going back to living our lives any way we choose. Or simply adding a few extra rules, trying to be a little bit more moral while going to church on Sunday. That's not what discipleship is. Saying yes to Jesus' invitation means a radical reorientating of our entire lives. The final illustration that Jesus gives here is that of salt. Salt is valuable as long as it continues to be salty. It can season food, it can preserve food, it can even help start a fire. But it's only useful when it is salty. If it isn't salty, it's no use to us, and it's no use to God. Discipleship takes dedication and focus. Our walk with Jesus must never be taken for granted. We don't want to be useless to Jesus so that he needs to invite others to take our seat at the table. See, radical devotion to Jesus leads to radical compassion toward others as well, especially those who are on the fringe of society. It means radical love, radical truth-telling, a radical refusal to seek our own self-interests. It's a radical reorienting of our lives to the values of the gospel. And ultimately, that's what draws us together in unity our shared total devotion to Jesus and to the values of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is real unity, a unity of vision, a vision of loving people to real life in Jesus, a vision of impacting our community with the love of Jesus Christ, a vision that includes what real life in Jesus looks like, and that real life is entered into by devoting ourselves fully to him. See, in Christ's time, in the early centuries after, after uh, Jesus, following Jesus meant facing rejection. It meant ridicule and sometimes even death. Following Jesus wasn't something that people took casually. Sadly, that's not true for much of the Western world today. In fact, it's often the opposite. The church in, in which I ministered in Kansas was viewed by many in that community as a good place to become a member so you can, you know, make good connections and business associations for the advancing of your career and your business. Many others simply assume they're Christian because they grow up and live in a Christian country or a Christian home. But being a disciple of Jesus has nothing to do with those things. The call is always the same. Discipleship requires that Jesus be given primary allegiance, far above all the other allegiances of our life. The Lord wants priority over every area of our lives. And this requires that we interact with the Lord through his word, through prayer, through regular involvement among his people in the church. So uh, if today you are taking a wait-and-see attitude about joining this church, or if... uh, If getting more deeply involved in the outreach ministries of the church, well, I'll just wait and see. Please don't wait. 
This is the day of salvation. Or as Paul put it at the end of uh, his great chapter 15 to uh, the Corinthians, that great chapter on the resurrection, he says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not, is never in vain. Give yourself to the Lord. Dela Hayes, in his book on faith, writes uh, about a recent trip that he had taken to Haiti. And he he says this, I heard a Haitian pastor illustrate to his congregation the need for total commitment to Christ. And here was his parable. A certain man wanted to sell his house for $2,000. Another man wanted very badly to buy it. But because he was poor, he couldn't afford the full price. After a, a lot of bargaining, the owner agreed to sell the house for half the original price with just one stipulation. He'd retain the ownership of one small nail that was protruding from just over the door. After several years, the original owner wanted the house back, but the uh, new owner wasn't uh, willing to sell. So the first owner went out, found the carcass of a dead dog, and hung it from that single nail that he still owned. Soon the house became unlivable, and the family was forced to sell the house to the owner of the nail. The Haitian pastor's conclusion was this. If we leave the devil with even one small peg in our life, he will return to hang his rotting garbage on it, making it unfit for Christ's habitation. I think this true illustration is quite vivid on the topic of commitment. See, it's only half-hearted. If our commitment's only half-hearted or a commitment that leaves that small peg in our life, that we don't want to turn over to Christ, to ourselves. We will find the garbage of sin and depravity hanging on it. Now let me uh, clarify here. While we on uh, this side of the curtain never get to the place of complete surrender and devotion to the Lord in every area of our lives, and we continue to to discover new and fresh areas of our lives that we need to give over to the Lord. Real discipleship is always seeking to yield those aspects of our lives to him as he reveals them to us. It's a daily process of being yielded to our God as he reveals even another area in which I am still grasping on to my favorite sin or my favorite habit. It's a a united church community that comes together to understand this and to devote ourselves fully to Christ and to the gospel, seeking to draw others to the Lord's love. See, Jesus isn't teaching that we must be perfect in order to be saved. Salvation is by grace, and the gifts he gives us are the resources that enable us to be what he calls us to be. We don't fix our faults so that we can earn his favor. Instead, we turn, him, turn to him so that he can begin the work of renovation that he wishes to make in our lives. Disciples are under constant renovation. And that's uh, point three on your outline. Disciples are under constant renovation. On this side of heaven, the renovation is never done. And sometimes it requires a lot of tearing down 
before being built up again. And the renovation is never easy or pleasant. It's always costly. But it's always worth the work. And uh, what's important is that this often unifies us together as we recognize that each of us, each of our brothers and sisters sitting next to us, is always a work in progress. And we together spur each other on toward discipleship and greater devotion to our Lord. We live in a, a world today that's filled with all kinds of choices. You know, the message of our modern world is we can have everything we want among a, a plethora of choices. But because there are choices to have and be whatever we like, it has created attitudes in us that are the opposite of what Jesus calls from us. There's a decrease in commitment and continuity among most modern Christians. We often see our lives as, as an endless stream of meaningless events. And all of this has, is the opposite of what deep devotion to Jesus and his word ought to create in us. You know, uh, when Julius Caesar landed on the shores of Britain with the, his Roman legions, he, uh, he did something quite interesting. He took a bold and decisive step to ensure that uh, he would have military victory. And uh, he ordered his men to the edge of the cliffs of Dover. He commanded them to look down at the water below. And to their amazement, they saw every ship in which they had crossed the channel engulfed in flames. Caesar had deliberately cut off any possible retreat that they might have. And now that his soldiers were unable to return to the continent, there was nothing left for them but to advance and conquer. And that's exactly what they did, and it's what Christ calls upon us as his disciples to do. Don't look back. What Jesus is addressing here is a disciple attitude. So let me be even more clear. And this is point four on your outline. Only cross-bearers can be disciples. Only cross-bearers. This isn't optional. It isn't merely for the super-spiritual to take up our cross and follow him. It's for every one of us, every disciple. If we can't walk the path of rejection that Jesus walked, then we're not ready for the journey of faith that Jesus calls upon us as believers to take. When we accept Jesus' invitation to the feast of the kingdom of God, we are entering into a relationship with Jesus to join a lifetime journey of learning and growing in the grace of God. Paul called by that Germany, by the way, in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, the obedience that comes from faith. It's a lifestyle that the Lord expects from us as his disciples. This is what happens in us as individuals and as a community when the Holy Spirit comes and brings a fresh wave of revival and revitalization. I want you to know that I believe that's exactly what the Lord is doing here in our midst. As we pray for one another daily, and as we seek greater yieldedness, not only for ourselves and for our family, but for our brothers and sisters here at Parkway. Do I yield to the Lord in every area of my life? My possessions, my family, even my own life? Do I really trust Him to care for me? You know, it can be easy to say we've given 
over everything when we've only given over what we're comfortable handing over to him. We rarely know what the attitude of surrendering all or part of our lives will mean. It may mean giving up on certain career goals. It may mean greater sacrificial giving. It may mean having to lovingly confront family members in their sinful lifestyles. It'll definitely mean giving up our attitudes of self-pity and laziness. Those were two of my favorite attitudes. I don't know about yours. Devotion to Jesus means never turning a blind eye to immorality in our own lives, but rather ruthlessly removing the weeds of sin, idolatry, and selfishness that grow up in so many areas of our lives. It means relying on God and turning to him for wisdom when we're called to surrender areas of our lives that we've kept hidden. Discipleship to Jesus demands that we devote our whole selves to him and to his bride, the church. You see, there's no middle ground. Jesus doesn't give any. No place for compromise. True commitment is total and final. You know, unlike many of our modern-day contracts, there are no loopholes, no footnotes, no fine print, no escape clause, no redefinition of the terms at a later date, no exceptions. Sadly, uh, most, want, most of us want to serve God, but only on an advisory capacity, as I had a friend once tell me. That doesn't work in God's equation. We're to be devoted first to Jesus and then to his church, and all the other commitments of life follow in or differing levels after that. And accepting Christ's invitation means getting up, getting involved, We don't get to stand on the sidelines. No one is interested in the win-loss record of the referee. We must get into the game. We need to be involved. We need to be involved in our church. We need to be involved in the lives of our neighbors, in the lives of our families and friends, to the point of having serious, positive influence in their lives for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. So I'm asking you to get involved in God's mission that he's given us here at Parkway of inviting our neighbors in our growing and diverse community to know the light, love, and hope of Jesus Christ. It'll it'll mean speaking about Jesus boldly, fearing only God, disregarding the shame that it might bring. Wholehearted devotion to Jesus is really to be the measure of a Christian. I'm... uh, Reminded of the Bohemian reformer, uh, I've, I've uh, enjoyed a couple of biographies of him, and I would recommend them. Uh, that is John Hus. He was a man who believed the scriptures to be the infallible and supreme authority in all matters. He died at the stake for that belief in Constance, Germany, on his 42nd birthday. As he refused a final plea to renounce his faith, And Huss's last words, I think, uh, summarize the message well. What I taught with my lips, I seal with my blood. And so point five on your outline is that Jesus is never interested in having fans. I learned that from some of your confirmands uh, just this last week. Rah, 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 Jesus isn't what he desires from us. It's Jesus who defines what kind of relationship he wants from us as his disciples. 
and enthusiastic admirers and fans aren't an option on the table. And sadly, many churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. Every week, all the fans come to the stadium where they cheer for Jesus, but then have no interest in truly being his disciples. Many want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything of them. In the book, uh, Scarred Hands by Reverend James Hewitt, he tells the story of a small orphan boy who lived with his grandmother. One night, their house caught fire. The grandmother tried to rescue the little boy who happened to be asleep upstairs, and as she was doing so, she ended up dying in the smoke and in the flames. A crowd had gathered around the burning house. The boy's cries were help, for help were heard above the crackling of the blaze. No one seemed to know what to do because the front of the house was a mass of smoke and flames. Suddenly, a stranger rushed from the crowd and circled to the back where he spotted an iron pipe that reached to an upstairs window. He disappeared for a minute as he went up that pipe and reached the upstairs window, and then he reappeared with the boy in his arms. Amid the cheers of the crowd, he climbed down the hot pipe as the boy hung around his neck. Now let's, uh, let me take you to a scene weeks later. It was a public hearing that was held at the town hall to determine in whose custody the boy would go. Each person who wanted, wanting the boy was allowed to speak briefly. The first man said, I have a big farm. Everybody needs the outdoors. The second man told of the advantages he could provide. He said, I'm a teacher. I have a large library. He'd get a very good education with me. Others spoke. Then finally, the richest man in the community said, I'm wealthy. I could give the boy everything mentioned tonight, farm, education, and more, including money and travel. I'd like him in my home. The chairman asked if anyone else would like to say a word, and from the back seat rose a stranger who'd, slept, who'd slipped in unnoticed. As he walked toward the front, deep suffering showed on his face. Reaching the front of the room, he stood directly in front of the little boy. Slowly, the stranger removed his hands from his pockets, and a gasp went out from the crowd. The little boy, whose eyes had been focused on the floor until that moment, looked up. The man's hands were terribly scarred. Suddenly, the boy emitted a, a cry of recognition. Here was the man who had saved his life. His hands were scarred from climbing up and down that hot pipe. With a leap, the boy threw himself around the stranger's neck and held on for life. The farmer rose and left. The teacher did, too. Then the rich man. Everyone left, leaving the boy and his rescuer, who had won him without a word. Those marred hands spoke more effectively than any words. You see, that's the call upon us as his disciples, and this is point six on your outline. Remember that we are called as disciples of the man with the scarred hands. See, our Lord was crucified, dead, and buried, and he rose again from the dead. He has paid the cost, and he is still the man with the scarred hands who calls us to discipleship. 
who invites us to the banquet table of total transformation and complete devotion. What part of your life are you withholding from the man with the scarred hands? What area of your life is the man with the scarred hands calling on you to give over to him? See, today, that man with the scarred hands is calling us into a deeper discipleship as a church and as individuals. So I'm praying for each of you daily that the Lord would so move on your hearts by his Holy Spirit as to draw you into his amazing love, his amazing love for you, that your values and desires would be daily transformed, that you would daily die to yourselves that you might truly live, live for Jesus our Lord. Because that's really the only life worth living. And that is the life worth living together in unity as we spur one another on to greater devotion to our Lord and a life that reflects values of radical compassion and selflessness as shown by the man with discarded hands. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord of love, you have, um, you have given us a wonderful vision here at Parkway of loving people to real life in Jesus. And Lord, we pray. We pray that we will live out that vision and the mission of inviting our neighbors to know the light and love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the amazing vision that you have given us. Thank you that you have called us to devotion to true and real and radical devotion to you, to the one who gave himself for us, to the man with the scarred hands, as to whom we are to be devoted, to live out the values of self-sacrifice, of real love, of real grace and real mercy in a community and a world that knows little of that. On display every day, it seems, in the news, is a world filled with violence, anger, hate, selfishness. And yet, Lord, you have called us to a very radically different life, a life of devotion to Jesus Christ a life of compassion, a life of love, a life of self-sacrifice. And Lord, uh, on this Thanksgiving season, as we prepare to spend time with family, friends, loved ones, we pray that that devotion, that radical devotion that you've called us to would be on vivid display in our lives. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's, uh, let's stand together now for, uh, as we close with uh, a verse or two, I think, from Ancient Words. <clears throat>